Judges chapter 9. I will say our study of the book of Judges and these few sermons that we've covered so far have sparked more interaction between you as a congregation and myself, which I welcome. I have talked with several of you concerning some of these things that we've dealt with in Judges, and I pray that the Lord would continue to use them in my life and yours. I will be the first to confess not everything we consider in the Word of God is easy. We are approaching the chapters in Judges, especially the next couple of weeks, not so much today, that will greatly uh, confuse us if we're not careful. There's some moral dilemmas to be found and God helping us, we will understand them rightly. This morning, we're going to deal with chapter 9 in its entirety. Judges chapter 9, which deals with Abimelech. We were first introduced to Abimelech at the close of chapter 8. And the scriptures tell us there that in verse 29, Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons. For he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. So it's no coincidence that out of his 70 sons, this one here is named. He is the primary figure in chapter 9. We read then that Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, and as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again did play to the harlot with the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. This ninth chapter that we're approaching this morning has an overall negative tone to it. We can't help but see that as we work our way through. There is very little positive that happens and I suppose the only positive things that we can gather from it are to learn the lessons and to see the biblical principles here that are embedded in it. One of the major takeaways from this ninth chapter, we're going to see many align themselves together with evil intent and with evil motive. And this teaches us that there is no true and lasting fellowship to be found among evil men based upon evil or sinful principle. The reason is simple. It's all built upon pride and promotion of self. Abimelech has one person that he wants to exalt, and it is himself. And he is successful in the eyes of the world he reaches and attains the status that he is desiring, but as we'll see as the chapter comes to a close, it all crashes down upon him tragically and in an instant. Evil destroys evil because evil does not care for its own. It only cares for itself. This is one of the distinctions that we find in all of Scripture, the difference or the distinction between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. True and lasting fellowship. And the word fellowship there really means to have a sharing in something, to have a commonality in something. True and lasting fellowship is only found in Christ and among the people of God. 
because the fellowship that we have is built upon the truth. Did not Jesus say of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So even as Christians, we must beware of attaching ourselves to one another based upon any other shared interest. There are shared interest groups to be found even among Christians. You can rally around any number of good things. But even those good things are not the best thing. Even those good things, if they become primary, will lead you astray. One of the things we can say with certainty is that Jesus Christ will never lead you astray. If your fellowship with one another and our fellowship as a church together is built upon the person, the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we are built upon the one and only firm foundation Scripture offers. Anything else will come crumbling down. We're going to see that here this morning. I want to break this chapter down. We're not going to read all, all of the verses. I want to break it down into three parts. And then we'll go back and, and see these things. But first, I want you to see the glaring differences in chapter 9 as we compare them to the previous eight chapters. After we view those differences, and they are significant and helpful in understanding it, after we see the differences, I want to approach chapter 9, the narrative itself, and just let the scriptures tell us the story, the true story of Abimelech. And then lastly, God helping us, we will discern a few principles or lessons from God's interaction with Abimelech and the people of Shechem. So before we begin that, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this chapter and upon the truth that we'll consider. Father, we come this morning and we ask particularly that you will help us here. Lord, even here in this ninth chapter of Judges, we want to see Christ. We want to see his goodness, his faithfulness, his justice. We want to see the inability and futility of man's government when it is not established upon the truth and sincerity of the word of God. We want to see the great destruction that comes upon those who seek to promote self and who operate based upon pride and arrogance. So Lord, we ask that you would now by your spirit come alongside of us, help us to profit and benefit from our time together in the scriptures. Lord, be that through edification and building up or be it through tearing down. Lord, we leave that in your hands. We know that you will do right among us. And we pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So first, the glaring differences in chapter 9 as compared to the first 8. You'll notice the cycle of judges that we've talked about where there is a time of prosperity, a time of peace brought on by the Lord. And that prosperity and peace causes the people to fall into sin. The Lord raises up a deliverer, accomplishing salvation for the people, coming full circle to a time of prosperity and peace. And that cycle repeats itself over and over. Chapter 9 stands as an interruption to that cycle. We would expect for the scriptures to move straight out of the 28th verse of chapter 8 
which says the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon, straight to the sixth verse of chapter 10, which tells us that the people of God again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the normal cycle. Chapter 9 stands in isolation. But yet we submit our understanding of it to the wisdom of the Spirit of God who inspired this writer to include it in all of its details. And and note the detail. Great details about this man, Abimelech, and his fall. We also see in chapter 9 that Gideon is no longer referred to as Gideon. He is referred to as Jerubal in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubal. This was the name that his father Joash gave him after he tore down the altar of Baal. And I remind you that his name Gideon, funny though it may be, means to hack or to hew. He hacked down the altar of Baal. It's as if the writer of Judges is looking over that now and just calling him by the name given to him by his father. Jeroboam means, if you go back to the sixth chapter, it means let Baal contend. And contend here Baal does. But that's not the only thing that's different. Even the name of the Lord is different. What we don't find in the ninth chapter is a reference to Yahweh. We find the more general term Elohim for God, and only that three times. And I think that's significant, and we'll come back to that here in just a moment. One of the other great differences in this ninth chapter is that just retribution comes on to the scene. The first eight chapters have been nothing more than God bestowing grace and mercy upon an undeserving, stiff-necked, rebellious people time and again, giving them what they do not deserve, dispensing grace and mercy to them. Chapter 9 is totally different. Retribution comes. Chapter 9 shows us what God gives a people who justly deserve it. And also points to the fact that his justice will come in the end. And we do well to remember all the attributes of God, right? We must have a scripturally balanced understanding of who God is. Or else we fall into great heresy. Anybody know the name Rob Bell? Rob Bell, several years ago, authored a book. The title of that book, Love Wins. He was a universalist. He thought that in the end, God was so loving, so gracious, so merciful that no one could be sent to hell or ultimately judged by this loving and gracious God. That is a, an extreme example, mind you, but an example nonetheless of one that does not have a scripturally balanced view of the God of the Bible. That's why the Westminster Catechism is so helpful when it answers the question, what is God in this way? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. God is a compilation of all of these attributes, each one in perfection. God is perfectly wise, perfectly powerful, perfectly holy, just, good, and perfectly true. So what Judges chapter 9 helps us to do is to understand God 
in all of his attributes. So that's another difference. Just retribution in the place of grace and mercy. I want you to notice the three times that God is mentioned in the more generic name Elohim. All of these are important. We'll come back to them later. But the first, in verse 7, Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, he comes and he preaches on Mount Gerizim a sermon of sorts. Really, it's a parable. He tells a story about differing types of trees, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to see in verse 7, he says to the men of Shechem, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Here is the introduction of justice. And here is also just a little hint of mercy in the midst of this great judgment of God. Also in verse 22, the name of the God is referenced here, but excuse me, verse 23, as he is the one responsible for sending a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Again, another act of God's judgment. God actively sending the spirit of ill will between Abimelech and his own brethren. And then lastly, if you look all the way over to chapter 9, at the very end, twice in verse 55 and 56. Verse 56, thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech. Just retribution. But you keep reading there in verse 56, God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing 70 brothers. And all of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, or the son of Gideon. Another great difference in this chapter before we get involved in it. Before... All of the calamity or trouble, or we might even say judgment of God, has come from without the people of Israel. God used neighboring countries and nations to do his work among them. This time it's altogether different in that the treachery is found from within. In Abimelech. Perhaps this is the cause for such swift retribution. But as we begin in this ninth chapter, we have to answer this question, who is Abimelech? We know he is a son of Gideon. We need to be reminded that he was also the son of Gideon's concubine, who was of the people of Shechem. That's why he goes to these people of Shechem and strikes a deal with them. So let's read just a bit of chapter 9, working down to where Jotham appears on the scene. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them, with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And he asked them a question, Which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. 
And his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And notice this, this, their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech. Evil is drawn to evil. This in a very powerful way. But notice, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, evil has turned on itself. And everyone that makes this initial agreement is destroyed. But for now, their hearts are inclined to follow. They said, he is our brother. So they gave him 70 shields of silver from the temple of Baal, with which Abimelech hired, notice, worthless and reckless men. And they followed him. Why did they follow him? Because he paid them. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers. Now, this is a central part of the story because just retribution comes upon Abimelech based upon this action. And notice the horrendous nature of it. He killed the 70 sons of Jeroboam on one stone. That's significant, not just because he was a murderer at heart. He sacrificed his brothers to the God of Baal upon the altar of Baal, upon one stone. But Jotham, who was the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar, which was in Shechem. And so here we have the treachery of Abimelech. It's interesting when you study the names, names in Hebrew Old Testament scripture carry a lot of meaning. Abimelech's name means my father is king. And here apparently he takes it to heart and goes and executes a great slaughter of his own brothers offering them to Baal as a sacrifice. But here comes little brother. We don't know how old Jotham was. We do know that he was able to hide himself. And the irony here in verse 7 is that Jotham finds himself perched on Mount Gerizim And if you know your Old Testament scriptures well, you know that Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing as opposed to Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. But here on the Mount of Blessing, this youngest son of Gideon pronounces a curse upon the people of God. And he uses a parable. We're going to read it. But as with most parables, when you study them, especially the parables of Jesus, rather than picking them apart and making them teach many things, usually they have one central meaning. That's the way this parable comes to us. There is one central meaning, and it's not found until we get to the end of it. So here's what little brother says to Abimelech and to all the men of Shechem. In verse 7, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried out, and he said, listen to me. You men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. In other words, that God may hear and discern your true motive and intent. This was Jotham's prophetic utterance of coming justice. 
and let there be no confusion as to whom the author of this justice is. He says, God is going to listen to you. And then here's the parable. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, this was their first choice, the olive tree, come and reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? The point here is the olive tree was too noble. The olive tree was too content in his own good work to set it aside and come to, quote, sway over trees. So the trees then said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But again, the fig tree, more noble, said to them, should I cease from my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? For the third time over, the tree said to the vine this time, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? And in verse 14, the fourth time, all the trees said to the bramble. Now, a bramble is a bush. Think tumbleweed. You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees. Now, keep in mind, the bramble had no noble purpose like an olive, a fig, or a vine. The bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you. Then come and take shelter in my shade, but if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with Jeroboam and his house well, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, delivered you out of the hand of Midian. You remember last week, that's what we looked at. And Gideon, in truth, did all of those things. He risked his life, he fought, he delivered from the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. So if we go back to the parable, what is Jotham saying? No one in their right mind would leave a good calling and come and reign over you, bunch of heathen. Except a useless, worthless, good for only kindling fire, bramble bush. This is the scriptures equating of Abimelech. What was he? He was a bramble bush. He rose up under his own strength, according to his own pride. And just as the bramble here speaking says, let fire come out of the bramble, that's exactly what happens. But I want you to notice something else before we move on. And that's the question in verse 16. If you have acted in truth and sincerity... Notice here, truth and sincerity is nowhere to be found in their actions. Principle for us 
is wherever truth and sincerity is lacking in a people, destruction will surely follow. We can fast forward and make application of that to our own time. Where truth and sincerity are lacking, destruction is sure to follow. It's exactly what happens here. If we were to continue reading through, you'll see here that at the end of this, Jotham runs away and he flees and he goes in hiding again for fear of Abimelech. Abimelech's reign is very short in comparison to the reign of other kings. For three tumultuous years he reigned over the men of Shechem. Notice he was not the first king of Israel. He is the king over Shechem. And then we find the first introduction of God at work. And that behind the scenes, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Just three years earlier, they were ready to anoint and exalt this bramble amongst them as their king because he was their brother and he had promised to do them good. Now the Lord intervenes and he sows a spirit of discord between them. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the top of the mountains and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. I'm going to paraphrase and skip through part of this, but just know that if you were to continue reading from there down to, say, verse 30 or following, all that you have there is very treacherous, murderous dealings between the men of Shechem and Abimelech with everyone around them. There is one man who makes his way onto the scene in verse 26, and he comes seemingly out of nowhere. His name is Gael. He comes, and in his own mind, he is going to be the end of Abimelech, but not so because of, of Abimelech's treachery. You can read that in verses 30 through 37 or so. But I want to get to the end of Abimelech, and then make a few points of application. After he destroys the men of Shechem, and what you'll find as you read, he utterly destroys this people and this city, even going so far as to pouring salt on all the ground of the city so that nothing would grow upon it. People had fled to the tower, about a thousand men and women in a tower Abimelech cuts down branches from trees, orders all of his men to do the same. They pile them around the tower, they burn it, and everyone in dies. Thus the wickedness of this man. That's important. I think all of these details are here for us to show the justice of God in the fall and the death of Abimelech. So he was successful in Shechem, so he thinks that he'll go to the next neighboring town in verse 50 and, and do the same thing against this city. He encamps against it. There was a strong tower in the city. All the men and women, all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves up in it. They went to the top of the tower 
I'm in verse 52. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire, but... Notice what happens. A certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, A woman killed him. Do you see how strong the root of pride is? Even in the very end close to death as he were, his concern was what people would say about him after his death. Don't let them say of me like they say of Sisera, remember? A woman killed him. So the young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. We can't miss the irony in this story can't miss the place of the stones in this story. We can't miss the exactness of God's just retribution. Seventy brothers killed on one stone and then one stone dropped from a tower on Abimelech's head. God repaying his wickedness. I want to move from a look at this narrative to some things that we might learn and gather from it. First, God is always in control. God is always in control. He doesn't appear on the scene often in Judges 9, three times only. But each time, with each mention, He is letting the fact be known that he is ultimately in control of this affair of Abimelech. Now, Christians living in 2022, take heart. Take heart. Though Abimelech's reign over us, God is in control. Though wicked men have called and assembled to themselves wicked rulers... God is in control. Psalm 115, verse 3, has no expiration date. That verse tells us that our God sits in the heavens and he does there whatever he pleases. Throughout this ninth chapter, we see the providence of God at work. We also see the hand of restraint pulled back just a bit. He gave Abimelech a very long leash, so to speak. But that leash, like all leashes, have an end. And that's the way that we think of Satan even now, right? He's like a dog on a chain. He has great authority. He has great power. But there is a limit to what he can do. 
thus the man Abimelech. Think of all the works of providence in this ninth chapter. Think of what we read over so quickly, the end of Abimelech, the millstone being dropped. Think of how all of that would have had to come together perfectly to actually happen. How did a woman get a millstone to the top of a tower? Did she do it by herself? Did she coerce other people to help her? An upper millstone would have been significantly heavy. We don't know exactly how tall the tower was, but we know that it would have taken some work and wouldn't have just happened in a few seconds. And how could she have lured Abimelech to the very door of the tower? And how could she, never having practiced this before, her aim had been so perfect to drop it just at the right time, at the right place, so that it would precisely hit the head of Abimelech? Do you see how the providence of God is at work everywhere in this story? It harkens back to the death of another king, Ahab. And you have to love this verse in Scripture, 1 Kings 22, verse 34. Now a certain man drew a bow at random. And what did that arrow drawn at random do? It struck the king between the joints of his armor. How precise was that, quote, random act? The same here is, is looking at this woman dropping the stone upon Abimelech, fear not, the Lord reigns. That's not to say things may not get very bleak and that Abimelech's leash might seem to be too long for our comfort. But it has an end. And in the end, God will reign him or all of them in and usher in his own purpose. What do we learn from the parable of the trees that Jotham tells us? Well, first of all, we learn wicked men get wicked rulers. Wicked men very often get what they deserve. And we also can see there that those that are functioning in some noble task want very little to do with an inhonorable activity. The olive, the fig, and the vine wanted nothing to do with holding sway over the trees. It took a useless, good-for-fire-only bush to accept their call. Thirdly, we can learn, and please hear this, the just retribution of God will come upon all wickedness. The just retribution of God will come upon all the wicked and wickedness. The timing. The timing is the Lord's. Sometimes that just retribution comes in this life as it did with Abimelech. And if that just retribution comes in this life and doesn't end in physical death, then it is a tremendous mercy of God. How many would attest and bear testimony that God did something to so, to so shake you 
show you your own sinfulness and your own need. And then immediately he met that need in the person of Christ. All wickedness is going to receive a just retribution, sometimes in this life, but mark it down with all biblical authority, we can say certainly it will come in the next. And when it comes in the next, it's final. It's over. There is no purgatory where you can go and work out your sinfulness. There is no purgatory where you can buy your forgiveness. There is no intervening period or place where you can go between the here and now and the over yonder. It is appointed for a man once to die and then what? Judgment. Notice Abimelech got exactly what he deserved. The scriptures, withhold, the scriptures set forth the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What did Abimelech get? A stone for a stone. And we've all already seen where truth and sincerity are lacking And where decisions and rulers are acting without truth and sincerity, that is a sign and a mark of a culture under the judgment of God. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, one of the things we gather from this ninth chapter, and fathers, please hear me. I'm saying this to you just as one who is reading the scriptures, not as one who is putting forth myself as an example. God help us all in this. I read this this week and I, I've contemplated it and I think this man is exactly right. The seeds of apostasy in Gideon took full root and flowered in Abimelech. Think on that for a moment. What kind of seeds of apostasy were there in Gideon? Is he not mentioned in Hebrews 11? The faithful time would fail me to tell of Gideon. He is. But the scriptures deal so honestly with him. And they show us not only his great faith, but like David, his great failure. What did he do? What were the seeds of his apostasy? Do you remember in his calling, what did he do? He questioned he doubted. He laid out the fleece. He did all of these kinds of things. He had a, a, what seemed to be an insatiable desire for recognition. Do you remember the sword of the Lord and of Gideon? Where was his sword after all? Go back and read that chapter. Then we have the whole issue of his ephod. Remember? Hey, give me all your gold and I'm going to fashion it into this ephod. I'm going to set it up in the town square. And then we read in verse 27 of chapter 8. Then Gideon made it into an ephod, set it up in his city. And all of Israel played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his people. What about his many wives, just like Solomon? 
his many wives, and his, especially his concubine, from whom came Abimelech, were his great downfall. Fathers, take note. You and I, and this applies to mothers as well, parents, take note. You and I have a great responsibility before the Lord with the souls that he has entrusted to us in our children. We are to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's not always easy. But it's necessary. We can't go to sleep on this Another principle of scripture is we reap what we sow. One of the sad realities of many Christian parents is the expectation of reaping a harvest that they haven't sown. Is reaping godly character when no godly character has been sown. Now, let me be very quick to say, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is not our work alone. The Spirit of God must come alongside and help, but it is our responsibility. God helping us. So recognize your place. If God has given you children, what is, what is the purpose? What does Malachi say? Why, why this Union between man and woman. What is God's design? What is his purpose? He desires what? Godly offspring. So what we have seen here today in conclusion, I'm almost done. Evil and wickedness will in the end get exactly what it deserves. The timing and methods belong to the Lord. The testimony of scripture is that all have sinned all have fallen short of God's glory. And all are under the sentence of death as the wage paid for their sinfulness. All are headed to destruction and that destruction is final. That's because of our relation to Adam and our own sinfulness. We are under the just judgment of God. Here's the good news. Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's the good news. Justly condemned, but God, who is rich in mercy. 
I want to reiterate some of the words we sang this morning and ask you, do you really believe what you sang or were you just mouthing words? We sang, it is enough that Jesus died. It is enough. He did declare it is finished. You need no other argument. You need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus has died for you. We sing that other great old hymn. Was it for sins that I have done he suffered on the tree? Yes. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. And then we began singing, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Why? Because I've been ransomed. I've been healed. I've been restored. I've been forgiven. Evermore his praise I will sing. I trust and hope and pray that we can all sing that in truth together. The only way you can sing it in truth to come to Christ. Why would you not? Today is the day of salvation, the day of grace. The invitation Christ extends is come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The other side of that, keep on toiling, keep on laboring, trying to establish your own righteousness. You'll never find rest and you'll bear the judgment of God throughout all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this ninth chapter of the book of Judges and the truth that we find there. We know that you are a God of justice and very often thank Thank the Lord, very often you act with great grace and mercy. But Lord, we know there is a finality of judgment that may come in this life, but certainly will come in the next. You will execute a perfect, just vengeance upon evil, upon sin, and all of those who will not come to Christ to find forgiveness to be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Father, we pray that you would draw men unto yourself, that you would draw women, boys and girls, unto yourself. Save them. Do it in such a way that you receive the praise and honor and that there be no question that you have been the dispenser of grace yet again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.